Hey, this is Brother Mouse, and my episode today is how I got into Linux. Uh, it's something of a of a long journey. I'll try to keep it moving briskly. I wasn't necessarily going to do one of the episodes on this topic, but uh, I was inspired listening to Raji's show recorded at uh, one in the morning on the porch or what have you. So, a lot of this happened a long time ago, and uh, so I may not remember everything exactly correctly. I will rel relate it to you as well as I can, but I assume I'm going to make some uh, errors in memory and in details. Um, also, uh, as a younger man, I made uh, decisions that may not have always been the most ethical. I don't think I ever did anything that was breaking the law, but in the spirit of a statute of limitations, I'll tell you that all these stories are completely false, fiction, and made up by me. So, <laughs> we'll see how that works out. Um, my first computer was, uh, I got in junior high, and we had been choosing between, um, if I remember correctly, VIC-20, which was around 300 bucks, the Timex Sinclair, which was famously $99, but had the little chiclet keyboard, uh, or the TI-994A, which I liked, but was around $500. Um, during that month or so period that my family was, was uh, deciding on a computer, that just happened to be when the 994A had the big price slash to $149. So we went ahead and, and picked up one at that $149 price point. Um, it continued on to $99, but the $99 ones were the beige ones, and mine was the original black and silver. If I remember correctly, you would program in TI Basic by plugging in a little cartridge that said TI Extended Basic or something like that, and it would come up to a prompt. And you could either um, type in everything right there on the keyboard, or you could load stuff that you had previously written from cassette tape. And so I had the cassette tape uh, cabling, and just, if I remember, I think I just plugged into a regular cassette deck. It may have been a a dedicated one, but I'm pretty sure it was just a regular cassette deck like you might get at, at Radio Shack. Um, and when you would load those files back, it would have kind of a carrier signal. It would go like, Doo! and then it would start this, I think, like 1200 baud data. It would be like, like that. And it took forever to load. And um, But it worked. I mean, you could actually save your programs and um, and and load them back off of the cassette. I found online a recording of a guy uh, that a guy made of an Apple cassette data tape, and I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes so you can kind of get a little a feel for how that used to sound. And, and like I say, you'll hear that that long kind of sync tone, and then it actually starts with the data. I also had a, uh, if I remember correctly, the rubber cup acoustic modem, 300 baud. By the time I got to high school, the Commodore 64 had come out, and uh, I took a course in computer programming in high school. I, I eventually took another one in college, not programming, but I mean a, just a computer science required course for the bachelors. But the one in high school had you know regular classroom, and then I think eight Commodore 64s with eight key, uh, with eight uh, monitors, and it had some kind of a bus deal where you could all use one 
of the like 1541 floppy drives, they're giant. The, um, they were just giant devices, and you'd slop, um, slip those five and a quarter discs in there, and, and then rotate that lever down to move the head up into the into that reinforced hub. And uh, I think it held all of like 170k or something like that. So, so my first adventure in hacking happened there in high school because we would all have to take your floppy and you'd put it in the drive. Then you go back to your workstation and you would load it. And then you would normally go back to the floppy and un take your disk out so someone else could use it. Then you'd write your program, get happy with it, and then resave it. Go put it back in and resave it. Well, I figured out that you could like queue up the load syntax, whatever it was. Let's say it was load space whatever, and put your hand on the enter key on the keyboard. And then when someone put their disk in and flipped that lever and they turned around to walk back to their seat, you go pop and you hit enter and you'd load whatever it was that they had on their disk. Or you'd look at the contents and then load it, I don't remember. But uh, normally by the time they got back to their seat and sat down, you would have pulled a copy of it in and you could look at their code. Um, now if you waited too long if you waited till they're at their desk and then you started to load it, then it could interfere with their load and, and uh, they would see a long delay and they would look over and realize what was going on. But if you timed it in such a way that they were still walking away from the drive to their seat, uh, then you could pull up their code and look at it. Now, I never did anything to their code. I mean, it wasn't malignant. I just wanted to see what other people's code looked like. Um, so that was the first of the I guess, ethical lapses that I'll uh, share with you today. Now, for my high school graduation, I got one of the newest, most fanciest computers at the time, which was an Apple IIe, uh, expanded to 16K of memory. I know, I know. Uh, a green monitor, a floppy drive, and it wasn't just a floppy drive, it was a duo drive, which was two floppies side by side. And at this time, I will uh, neither confirm nor deny uh, my familiarity with tools such as Locksmith or Nibbles Away. Now, this Apple also had a 9-pin printer. That was my first printer, 9-pin dot matrix. And uh, it had the same size, 5 and a quarter uh, floppies as the old Commodore. But I'm thinking that they held a good deal more information by that time. I don't remember what the number was, 360K or something like that. I think by this time, disks were being sold as either double-sided or single-sided. Now, even the ones that were double-sided, I think, required you to pull out and flip over the disk and put it in with the other side up. But you could use a hole puncher and punch out the right-enabled hole. So if you had a single-sided floppy, or, for example, someone gave you an old floppy that was um, read-only, and it was like for software, you could use a hole puncher and punch a hole in the side and it would actually write to it. By the time I finished high school and went off into the Army, I believe Mac had start making the little rigid three-and-a-half-inch floppies that are familiar probably to most of you. Um, at that time, the Army was still using eight-inch floppies, um, and they were using them in Wang word processors. By the time I got out of the Army and into 
college. This was the early 90s. And um, by this time, um, I had been given a hand-me-down 386 16 megahertz machine with, I think, 4 megs of memory, which I eventually upgraded to 6 megs of memory. Uh, but at the time, a meg of memory, and these were SIPs, S-I-P-P-S, these SIPs were $50 a meg. So this hand-me-down Intel box uh, was the beginning of a pattern in my life. I've never had a great deal of money, and so I've always had old machines. I've never actually owned a new computer that was current generation. Uh, so I find myself attracted to the um, kind of more efficient distributions, um, smaller OS's, and you'll see that pattern develop later as we go forward. I finished up a bachelor's and went off to graduate school. And the graduate school where I was, in the library, they had a subscription to what was called StarText. It was one of the early online news services, communities, and things like that based out of Fort Worth, I noticed after a while a couple of things about the StarTex connection. Number one, it was a normal computer that was accessing it. It was not a dedicated terminal. Number two, the password, username and password, were written on a piece of paper and stuck to the monitor. Number three, I seem to be the only person using uh, this service at all in the library. I mean, I never saw another human being in there who even knew it existed. So I wrote down the username and password off the monitor and took it home with me and dialed up with my 2400 baud modem and connected with the username and password and got in just fine. Well, I was paranoid for various reasons about this and, and uh, not the least of which it was, a, it was during the day and if someone was trying to use StarTex in the library, it would have kicked them out. And to me, that does two things. Number one, it would reveal that someone else was attempting to use the account. Number two, it would be rude of me to bump off a more legitimate user in the library. At this point, I know it's possible to log into StarText from my home on my own machine, but I stopped doing it after that test uh, because I didn't want to interfere with the library's usage. At some point, I realized that the library closed at, let's say, 10 p.m. and at that point it would be impossible for anyone to be in the library using StarText. So I'm thinking, well, number one, it's going to waste. Number two, if I did use it from off-premises, it's not possible that I could bump a legitimate or more legitimate user off the system in the library. So at that point, after 10 p.m., I started logging on and reading using the information services, mainly for academic purposes. There were some people I wanted to email on the system. I want to call it email, although it was not email. There are people I wanted to email, but then I realized that if they emailed me back, it would show up in the library's account and, you know, busted. I realized, after poking through the configuration files, that you could set up sub-accounts. And these sub-accounts were username dot and then some other name. For example, uh, you know, if you had an account at your house and you had a daughter named Clara, you could have, you know, 103367 or whatever your ID was, dot Clara, and when she logged in as Clara, it would use her settings, have her a separate standalone mailbox 
yada yada yada. People could email directly to that pendant account. The problem is when you looked at the configuration, it would actually show you what names were in those slots. It would say it would say subaccount one dot dot dot, subaccount two dot dot dot, subaccount three dot dot dot. So what I did was is I named my subaccount dot. So now the first line said subaccount dot 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 yeah dot 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 four of them and the other ones just had three periods and so unless you were carefully looking at this green monochrome screen you wouldn't catch that there was in fact a subaccount called dot so when I would use the system then I would log in as subaccount dot under this main account so my email and everything else all happened under this dot dot account. I didn't access any premium services if there were any and I didn't do anything to bring undue attention. I didn't overuse the system so as far as I know uh, that was no harm no foul although technically I probably shouldn't have been in there outside of the library. It did expose me to a group of people who started talking about BBS's um, so over time I started using BBS's instead of or in addition to StarText and I even set up my own bulletin board system under the FidoNet uh, rubric and um, mine was 1 colon 124 slash 3208 and ran it for a few years and uh, started having meetups with some of the people who ran their own BBS's and uh, at the time these were all all technical people that you would meet because only super dweeb techno dorks uh, would know how to set up a BBS on their machine anyhow. At the time, to give you an idea, uh, most of us were running 2400 baud modems although uh, some of the new, some of the early 14.4s were starting to roll out and they had to be hand configured. It was a mess. Most people were running Windows 3.1 with uh, 4 or 6 megs of memory. Uh, the people who were the Alpha Geeks were running OS2 usually with 8 megs of memory because they were uh, it was a more intense. Now there was a few people out there who apparently were extremely wealthy because they were saying that if you had 16 megs for OS2 it would really really multitask quite well. So personally I was using a regular DOS uh, 6 environment uh, desk view on top of it and uh, it was it was perfectly able to to handle uh, me using my personal business and running the, bul the bulletin board service in a different desk view window, um, all on that 3616. So I'm meeting people from the uh, bulletin board world, and they're starting to talk about X and Linux and Slackware, and I'm like, what? So uh, one of the one of my running buddies brought a laptop running Slackware Linux on it. Now she was not able to get X running on it yet. She did eventually but at that time she couldn't get it set up. But I was just amazed that there was some non-Windows operating system on this on this laptop. So that was the, my first real exposure. Over the, the next year or so someone ended up pushing on me um, a few floppies to do my own install. At the time Linux installs were done with one boot disk and several root disks. In this case it was probably five. In other words you'd have one boot image that you would use to boot up and then it would say stuff in your other 
floppies, and it would, you know, bam, 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 knock them out. So if you're doing something minimal, it might be three, four, five floppies. If you're doing a, you know, an actual server setup, um, it might be 30 floppies or so, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. So by this time, I had picked up a 486, I think, for my bulletin board, and I now had a dedicated workstation, which was the old 38616. Well, I got uh, an early Slackware version on that. This would have been probably 93 or so. So I had some Slackware on there, and I did my first kernel compile on that machine. And in case you were wondering, uh, an early Linux kernel on a 386.16 took about 12 hours to compile. By 95 or so, I was working at an ISP, one of the first ISPs in Dallas. And we spent most of our time camped out on the Spark 20s that ran uh, most of the services there at the ISP. So spending a lot of time on the command line. Um, and at night, I was messing with my Linux machines. So it was starting to, get to pick up some, some speed here. I was learning shell scripting, doing some light CGI, um, compiling my my first C executables. One of the interesting details about those of us running um, Windows 3.1 or even 3.1.1 for work groups, or maybe even the early Windows 95, is that the Windows did not have its own TCP/IP stack, and so to uh, to get that cranked up, you'd have to install something that had a WinSock. .dll in it, and the most common thing was Trumpet Winsock. At some point, uh, Microsoft pushed down a file that unpacked a new Winsock.dll into the uh, system directory or something, and it just instantly broke thousands of net connections around America, and tech support just blew up. Um, there was even at some point um, some chatter that the Department of Justice was going to start an um, investigation to see whether or not Microsoft had purposefully broken people's internet connections, but I think that didn't, didn't come to anything. I think it was just oversight, and once, once we figured out how to get people to rename those Winsock DLLs and put the original one back in place, um, all was well. During this time when we were working on, our, on the uh, Spark 20s, um, everyone who Worked there at the ISP, got our own personal web page, which was pretty hot at the time, having your own personal web page. And uh, a few of us were writing reverse chronological journals online with kind of short um, thoughts, things we were doing. Um, we called them online journals. I think they're called blogs now. By 96 or so, I had moved to another small hosting service for work, and I was in charge of the Linux boxes. So I built a bunch of Slackware boxes for uh, Usenet, Mail, Web, DNS, and those kinds of things. We had a handful of boxes there, and it was my job to do the installs. Around that time, BSD had their first FTP install, where you could have a one or two or three um, boot disks, and then it would actually pull the rest over FTP, and that was just exotic. Also at that uh, job, I had my first Linux desktop. It was a uh, P2 200 megahertz machine, and I think I was running a raging 1024 by 768 uh, screen at the time, and that was just massive, a big, huge 17-inch monitor 
Um, I think I was running FVWM because I liked the multiple uh, desktops. I had one that was set up for customers that would come in if they wanted to look over my shoulder. I had one set up for doing programming and one for administration so I could kind of hop between the different hats I was wearing by popping over to the different desktops. Between 2000 and I would say 2008, I ran uh, straight vanilla Debian servers and workstations. Um, I was doing some independent contracting at the time and and I wanted to make sure that anytime I built a server for anyone that it would be software guaranteed to not get anyone in legal trouble. So um, Debian is extremely conservative and they can be kind of anal retentive about it but you know you're at least not going to get into legal trouble using a Debian distro. So I did that up until uh, I would say 2009 and in 2009 I started to um, enough people started talking about Ubuntu that I was like, well, you know, I need to at least see what's going on with Ubuntu. So it so happened that that year I needed to build three new machines. Uh, I don't mean new hardware, I just mean three boxes based on existing hardware I had. One was my wife's workstation, one was my workstation, and one was a uh, Myth TV box which still does my uh, DVR duties in the other room. It's wonderful in case you've never never used it. It blows my TiVo out of the water. So I did um, Ubuntu or Ubuntu-based uh, spins. What do they call those spins? Spins, I think. Um, the one I used on my desktop was straight Ubuntu. On my wife's desktop, I used Zubuntu, which was the XC... FE desktop on Ubuntu and on the Mythbox I used Mythbuntu um, on my straight Ubuntu box I uh, quickly shed KDE and GNOME thinking that they were too heavy and so nowadays I use LXDE or Fluxbox also in 2009 I picked up a refurb E900 off of buy.com for a couple of hundred bucks and, and it has like 16 gig SSDs in it and so I started a love affair with very small Linux distros. Um, the first one I put on there was Puppy and I tried some other ones, Damn Small Linux. Uh, uh, the, the Puppy one is about 130 megs um, the smallest that I've used so far was TinyCore, and it's a little over 10 megs. I mean, you get a bootable X desktop for 10 megs, and you get a wired Ethernet, you know, stack. At that point, basically, you log in and decide what you want browser-wise and all that kind of stuff. So, but I mean, it actually comes up and it loads uh, in 10 megs. Like Reggie, I've been spending a lot of time in uh, virtualization. I started loading the operating systems into VirtualBox instead of using the UNet booting thing to put them on USB drives all the time. Uh, that way I could just drive them from my own desktop and, and see if I liked them or not. And if I did like them, then I moved them over to a USB and test drove them on the E. I've probably played with 20 or so distributions. Um, in VirtualBox just because it's free. It's free and easy to do it, you know. So if you haven't gone out there and played with any kind of virtualization, I'd encourage you to pull down VirtualBox 
or uh, QEMU. I don't know if you say Kimu or if it's just QEMU. I have no idea. For me, virtual back box runs faster on my old hardware, so that's why I use it rather than the QEMU tool. At this point, I have one Windows box left, and uh, it is an old file server that I had set up, and it drives an HP LaserJet and uh, some kind of all-in-one scanner printer thing that my wife scared up, and it also does Vox recording from police scanners to WAV files, and and uh, at some point I'll change that over to a Lin uh, Linux distro, but it's been running, you know, Windows 2000 since 2000, and it just sits there and runs on an old P3400, I guess, is what that is. I don't regard myself any kind of uh, particularly talented in Linux. Um, I think one of the things you find about Linux is that you there's so much to learn that you just learn new stuff every day, every week, every month. Just I think it's easier over time that you learn how to find the answers, and once you learn how to roll your own software from source and stuff like that, I think it just becomes a lot easier. Well, that was my journey from uh, TI-994A to a network built almost completely out of Linux boxes. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Hack Republic Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.